Presenting the Christian or seeker side. Yeah, but never find him. More about me. So, anyway, glad to be back. <laughs> Missed you guys. Um, and so, we're going to get, uh, we're going to, actually, I was going to sort of going to get right into it, but we're we've got announcements. Not. Yeah. <laughs> we've, got some, we've got some housekeeping to do. Uh, but stick with us. It's going to be a great show. I'm sorry about the audio quality up front. Uh, some of the things that I was trying to fix from last season, it's not going to get fixed uh, probably for another four or five episodes. So I'm dumping all of the audio responsibilities onto Dale. I'm, and uh, so any uh, complaints about audio, direct to Dale. Uh, and help you have some announcements. Sure. And they, they love my recordings. The the quality is just top notch. So um so 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 yeah, I guess um welcome back audience to, to season two. It's great to be starting up here. Um just by way of so, some announcements. Um so things to look forward to in coming weeks. Um, so I'm going to be, I'm working on my, getting up my solo show for the Leibnizian Cosmological Argument on um, a series about the existence of God, looking at the positive and negative evidences. Um, so I'm, I'm currently working, I'm going to be posting up my actual write-up as a, you know, as about 70 page write-up on that argument. Um, so I'm just working out some details with that. Once that's done, I'll put up the, the podcast for you guys to listen to in about a week or two, uh, in about a week or so. Um, secondly, uh, we have some special guests coming up in the next few weeks already lined up for you guys. So our first special guest is going to be Dr. Tony Costa. Uh, he's coming, coming on September 28th, uh, so that's two weeks from today, uh, to discuss the uh, ontological argument as advanced by Saint Anselm, so his particular version of it. Um, and also after that, I'll, I'll, David, who do we have coming the week after that? Do you I know? don't know. Oh, okay. Um, it's <laughs> yeah. So I I haven't nailed it down yet. Although I don't mind kind of pre-announcing it and putting some pressure on the guest. <laughs> I don't I don't think that would be a problem actually. So, what do you think? Should we do it? Uh, well, I'm not sure you're talking... Uh, are you talking about uh, MB, or are you talking about someone else? Uh, I'm talking about... I have no idea who... Okay, so, so I'll, I'll give my thing, and I'll, I'm not... David's talking about something else, I think. So, after Dr. Tony Costa on September 28th, on the following week, October 5th, we're having Dr. Michael Brown come on to discuss. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's going to be fun. Uh, yeah, we, we've got, uh, so he's going to be addressing, uh, he's, he's only with us for an hour. So we're going to be addressing three topics. So the first is going to be answering Jewish objections to Jesus. And with that, I wanted to focus on sort of uh, things like, does the Old Testament teach uh, a trinity or is it consistent with a trinity and, and that sort of thing? Uh, the second topic is one that we haven't really covered, and that's sexuality. Uh, 
what is the what is God's purpose for sexuality? Is homosexuality actually a sin, biblically speaking, and and that sort of thing? And and David's going to be going back and forth with him on that. Oh, welcome to my lair, Michael Brown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, he, he he's a great guy, so he he'll, he'll do. You know, he's he's very biblically focused, but also he presents uh, the side that I struggle with, the the loving side. So, um, yeah, I think that'll. And the third topic is also charismatic gifts, spiritual healings, and that sort of thing. David wanted to talk to him about that. So, yeah. Oh, I can't wait! <laughs> can't wait! <laughs> Excellent. Um, so, so yeah, the other last announcement we have is about the comment policy. So, so David and I have, have worked out some some policies for you guys, um, and we'll we'll write up. Should we go over it in audio, or do you just want to write it up? Uh, well, let's just write it up. Gotcha. Um, I, I will. I will say this. You know, we've uh, Dale and I have been uh, hashing out uh, comment policies on the board. And by the way, uh, we love you, commenters. Well, I love you, commenters. Um, I love some of you. I'll let, I like. Some I'll of let you. Dale speak for himself. <laughs> <laughs> Dale hates your guts. Uh, I love uh, you, commenters. And I wouldn't so, say that. Um, <laughs> so. Um, the, the thing is, we uh, we want to make a good, safeish environment for everybody because the idea is to encourage uh, more, not less, comments. Um, I'm I'm not uh, you know we're not looking for everybody to be nice to each other. This is not Disney, uh, but at the same time, there there are some things that I think each side can bend a little on. Uh, and kind of help each other out as we as we figure out how to be a community. Um, and so we'll we'll do we'll talk more about that uh, in writing. And I think that it'll be I think the comment section on SNS will be a better place for everybody. Perfect. Okay. Um, so yeah, as far as I can tell, that that covers everything announcements wise. Um, Unless David has has something he wants to announce. Um, yeah. Okay. I'll just go ahead and say. Okay. Uh, since I teased it. So uh, one of the guests that's uh, going to come on this season, uh, we have an agreement in principle. We almost had him on last year. It was going to be our last show, but then timing didn't work out. Uh, and so it's just a matter of working out uh, timing this year. But he's busy, so I don't actually uh, mind if you you know some of you do a write-in campaign and and uh, harass him a little bit. He can take it. Justin Brierley, uh is going to uh, step into my lair <laughs> as well and uh, uh, have some conversation. Uh, we'll talk about the subject uh, as we get closer to time, as we nail it down. But I'm looking forward to that uh, conversation. It'll, it'll actually be uh, very good. Justin Breyer is, uh, is a great person to talk to, uh, a great interview. I enjoyed listening to him. Uh, on other uh, interviews. And I think that uh, ours will be a little bit different, but um, I'm just going to pre-announce that now. So, uh, you know, if you if you write in to Justin and say, hey, I hear you're thinking about going uh, on Skeptics and Seekers, uh, you know, when you have a date, <laughs> he can take it. It'll be okay. You're not going to scare him off. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Uh, yeah, let, let's get straight into the 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 topic this is your your week um oh um one thing to so we've changed in season two to make it clear for the audience uh in order to t 
stop the this perception that me and David are talking past each other. Um, at the top of the blogs and in the podcast, right at the beginning, we're going to say what our claims are, if if there are any. Again, it's it's optional for us if if one or both want to make a claim on a given week and and therefore bear the burden of proof. Uh, we can make any statements of beliefs uh, as well as any presuppositions, things that our claims are founded on, but they're not up for for debate in the in the topic. Um, or we can just do nothing and just have a have a show where we're just talking it's it's up to whatever me and david want to do on a on a given week um but if if there are claims such as this week you'll see that right at the top it'll be played uh stated clearly for you guys and and in the podcast we'll mention right away if we're making any claims or anything like that um so you can bear that in mind as you listen to the show and see if we uh meet our burden of proof or not yeah and for me uh most weeks my position is this is why I don't believe a certain thing, or this is why I feel the way I do about a certain thing. It's not a claim. It's not a truth claim. It's just it's more of an explanation. So it's a sta- statement where of where my head is. Sta- right? Statement of belief or opinion is is what I've been exactly. Waiting. Gotcha. So that's 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 different from a claim. However, this week I am making a claim. Mm-hmm. So. I'm uh, I'm going I'm I'm stepping out there and in fact I'm stepping out there in a in an area that I've not heard anyone else do uh, and so I hope I do okay it's a new argument for me I've been working on it for a little while uh, today I am going to talk about the myth of orthodoxy and my claim is that there is no such thing as Christian orthodoxy. Not only is there no such thing as Christian orthodoxy, almost by definition, um, and, and by many agreed upon facts of, of the Christian church, there can't be any such thing as Christian orthodoxy. Now, this runs counter uh, to intuition. I, I get that. Uh, in fact, for a while, it ran counter to my intuition, and as part of my struggle when I was a Christian, and even after I was a Christian, trying to figure out what on earth Christian orthodoxy is, because I was a part of a denomination that was uh, that presented, let's say, minority review, uh, 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 minority opinion on, on Christianity. We were a small denomination, um, and outside, and I've, I've been a leader in three different denominations. I can tell you they're all different, uh, and they're different enough in ways so that they don't worship together, uh, and not all of them were small. Um, and outside of Christianity, I've had reason to want to know what orthodoxy was as well, because I'm talking to Christians and debating with Christians all the time. Uh, you you listen to season one of this show. We have, we've had a lot of uh, very prominent Christians on the show uh, who have agreed to uh, put time into uh, having discussions and or debates uh, with me and or Dale. It is very important for me to try to figure out what Christianity I'm debating from week to week. Because it seems like everyone is different. I've, I've got a retool for a different Christianity. And you see me on the discussion boards. Not just SNS, you see me on the unbelievable discussion boards. And every week it seems like I'm debating a different Christianity because someone else comes along and they have a different idea. So what is the orthodox view? What is the orthodox view? How do you figure it out? And I've been beating my head against that wall for a while, and that's partly... Uh, what encouraged me to start moving in the direction that I'm going to be presenting 
uh, right now, which is, I, I think the reason having such a problem with this is that there is no Christian orthodoxy. And so here, um, uh, I will just I will just go into making my case, and I'm going to encourage you all, as I did all last year, uh, if you have not read the blog post, go ahead and pause right now and read the blog post. I'll, I'll wait. Because the foundation of my argument is in the blog post, and it could be that Dale wants to bring out some points that are in the blog post. Oh, he, run a, he, he also wrote a counter post. But I'm not going to be reading my blog post here. He's not going to be reading his counter post. So I, I recommend that you read the blog post so that you can understand the foundation on which all of the rest of this is built. So if you're done reading now, uh, you're back. Uh, here we go. So first of all, I think this is a definitional um, argument. So we've, we've got to start by defining what orthodoxy is. And before I jump into it, I'm just going to go off script for a moment and ask you, Dale, uh, because I'll, I'm curious, and I haven't asked you this throughout this whole process. What, what does orthodoxy mean to you? When you hear that word, what, is, what does that mean? Uh, so sure, so it, it basically it comes from the Greek. Uh, it was invented um, to mean straight thinking or right opinion. Um, so that's literally what the definition means. So yeah, it, it basically represents um, what is the right way of thinking um, within a Christian context to be considered a Christian or a, a true Christian meeting the essential requirements um, for being defined by that term. Okay, so I uh, yes, that is a definition that I have also used in the past. I think it's a little too generic, though. And, and what I mean by that, uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying that the dictionary is wrong. I'm saying that um, language is idiomatic, and it has more to do with how we use words than what words meant by someone who wrote a dictionary. Okay. They, they, definitions grow and change over time. And so I think definitionally, it's, it's really all about the way we use orthodoxy. And so I'm going to go over some points uh, that illustrate what I think orthodoxy means. And we'll, we'll see if Dale and I meet up uh, somewhere near the end of this. So let me, let me take a few moments to, uh, to pay this out some. So first of all, uh, orthodoxy must be intentional and original, not a collection of successive advancements. In other words, to say that something is the orthodox view, it has to be the intention of the original founder. It can't be something that's made up as you go along. Uh, so I, th I think that is one of the clear distinctions that has to be there if we're talking about uh, orthodox, right? When I listen to Christians debate, I often hear Christians bring up a contemporary view, something that's fairly new. And I think to myself, well, that may be the right view. I mean, as far as um, what, what Christians should think, but it's definitely not the orthodox view, because that's that's not what um, the apostles were thinking. <laughs> you know, if we can if we can uh, judge what they were thinking by by what's written. Uh, so, 
you can't you can't have something that you make up as you go and then say that some new thing that you made up is orthodox. I contend that the Christian religion from its very beginning was something that was made up as it went along. It was not, in fact, something uh, well thought out in advance, set down with laws and bylaws, uh, and where orthodoxy was predetermined in, in some way. Uh, it's something that just kind of grew, became organic, had a lot of branches, um, disputes, um, you know, eventually it was, you know, pruned and shaped a little bit, but by and large, made up as, as, as we went along. And so it's hard to identify anything in Christianity that you can say, well, that was the original thought. Uh, orthodoxy, uh, don't worry, uh, Dale, we'll, we'll come back and let you, uh, Oh no no go it's your so I'm just I'm just uh, taking some time to that's fine it's your opening take, take, as, take as long okay. as you need so orthodoxy must be captured in a permanent form to be considered orthodoxy I understand that uh, many Christians uh, talk about uh, the Christian religion as an oral tradition and if you've heard me talk uh, you know of about historical matters, I, you will understand that I don't have a lot of respect for oral traditions. Um, I get it. You know, in a, in a pre-writing civilization, oral tradition is all you've got. But that is not the stuff of orthodoxy. And so it's really hard for any ancient religion to claim orthodoxy when its beginnings, uh, you know, if there were any orthodox rules or laws, were never actually written down or were only written down decades after the fact. So you, you can't actually go back to any source and say, well, this was the original intent of the founders, because you don't have it. You just, you what you have is a later writing uh, of oral traditions that, uh, that are pulled together. And I, I would say that you can't really uh, draw orthodoxy from that. Third point, uh, there must be a way to determine who's right uh, when adherents to a religion disagree. So part of um, uh, what is required for orthodoxy, I think, is a, a dispute method. Um, if, if two people disagree on something, this is the written law that you can go to, or these are the authorities that are authorized to settle, uh, you know, doctrinal disputes, or, you know, there has to be something uh, that allows for uh, settlement of disputes, so that we can so that we can know after that dispute which side, if either, is the orthodox view. Christianity does not have that mechanism uh, built into it. Christianity has a mechanism of um, consensus, uh, negotiation, almost. So, an example of this. Uh, would be the Jerusalem Council in, I want to say, Acts 15. Um, am I right about Acts 15? That may, that may not be right. Yeah, uh, no, that's correct. Yeah. Okay, so where were the, where were the deal was uh, with the Jerusalem Council? I can't be bothered to look it up right now. But um, so that wasn't that wasn't determined by taking a book or a written bylaw or even a quote from Jesus saying this is what he said on this. It was. A negotiation, um, and 
that's not the stuff of orthodoxy. <laughs> so um, that's that's kind of an example of making it up as you go along. Um, there must be a reliable way to reproduce uh, the religion. So in orthodoxy, I'm talking about religion uh, in, in particular. There has to be a reliable way to reproduce the religion in a different time and a different place. And so if you say there's an orthodox Christianity, then you have to be able to say, okay, so uh, if we if we travel to outer space, uh, you know, 3,000 years later uh, and land on another planet, we could reproduce original Christianity. I don't think that's possible. And I think the proof that that's uh, not possible is because we, we haven't done it. We've reproduced all kinds of religions with the label of Christianity, but they're all different. And they all claim to be orthodox. And so I, I don't think there is, in fact, a reliable way. One of the things that my denomination uh, used to claim is that we were the exact reproduction of the first century church, which was which was BS. <laughs> we were not the exact reproduction of the first century church, but that was the idea uh, behind it, uh, that the church was reproducible, that the Bible was a blueprint, the, the New Testament, it was a blueprint uh, to, to church making. Uh, I, I think that uh, I think that the evidence is in that it's not. Uh, Bill might argue otherwise. Um, my next point, there must be agreement among orthodox adherents as to what is and isn't orthodox. <laughs> so if you've got a collection of Christians in a room and they're, uh, it, you know, if there is an orthodox view, say, on um, homosexuality, they should all be able to agree on what that is. But if they do not, then it is evidence that there may not, in fact, be an orthodox view. Uh, you can't, one side can't just arbitrarily say, well, our view is orthodox. Um, there, there has to be a way to form that agreement. And uh, once again, uh, just looking at the evidence of, of the state of Christianity, there doesn't seem to be uh, such a method. So once again, I don't, I don't see how anyone can claim orthodoxy. Uh, next point, there has to be accountability for straying outside of orthodoxy. Now, churches have tried this. Some some uh, try shunning. Some do, you know, disfellowshipping, or, or, you know, a church might secede from its denomination and go independent. All of these things, though, just produce division. So if you've got one church and there's disagreement there and they break off into two churches, you, you just have now two claims of orthodoxy. You haven't actually established any orthodoxy. If you if you kick someone out and they form another church, once again you haven't really uh, effectively addressed uh, this this heresy idea. You just created another idea of what orthodoxy is. And so, built into its structure, there has to be some kind of accountability for what it means to stray outside. Uh, of orthodoxy, and I don't think the church has demonstrated uh, any reliable method for pruning itself and keeping itself pure so that you can say, so this is the church and everyone who doesn't believe this is a heretic. I think there have been efforts, uh, but largely unsuccessful. And finally, orthodox must be accessible to all, not just insiders. What I mean by this is it can't just be a private revelation. 
between you and God. Um, because then, you know, if Christians are talking to unbelievers, and the unbeliever says, yes, but I read this in your Bible, uh, blah, the Christian uh, falls back on, yeah, but you don't know what you're talking about because you're over there and I'm in here. You're an outsider. But that's that's not actually how orthodoxy works. It has to be a set of rules available uh, and identifiable by by everyone, insiders and outsiders. No, here are the rules. The rule is uh, blank is a sin. And you, you can't say, well, I don't know what I'm talking about because I'm not a Christian. If I'm looking at your rule book, if it's not discernible that way, then I don't think that you have anything that uh, looks like orthodoxy in, in any other uh, setting at, at the very least. Um, and also it has to be, once again, it has to be something that everybody within the institution can recognize as orthodox. And the reality is uh, that's not the case. Christians might agree on a very few things, uh, but on the many things they can't. And they can't even agree on what is historic, let alone orthodox. So before moving on to other points, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna stop there. Definitionally, these are the points that I've put together to try to understand what orthodoxy is, what it would mean. And by the way, I do believe that that there are religions that that have orthodoxy. Right? So I'm not saying that there's no such thing as orthodoxy. Uh, as I define orthodoxy, I believe that there is very much a such thing as orthodoxy. I think that uh, many religions have it. I don't think that Christianity is one of them. That in a nutshell is my case. Yeah. Okay, so uh, just to clarify for the audience, so this week I'm opting not to make any claims. Um, I'm solely in the position of defender here. Um, and I'm... I'm going to first adopt uh, not a Christian position, but I'm going to be Dale the Seeker. Um, and I've, I've composed some questions for David. To, and these are sincere questions. They're not designed to be gotcha questions. They're, they're designed to see, okay, can, can David establish his claim or not? And, and what goes behind it? Now, he he's actually, I've written these up uh, based on a an assumption that based on his blog, that his main reason for saying that there is no real orthodoxy or real Christianity is is because, um, well, he has his method of, well, there are self, if you're a self-professing Christian, then you are quote unquote a real Christian and you can be taken at face value um, as to what real Christianity constitutes. Well, there are many real Christians in the world and they contradict each other, therefore there's no real Christianity because it violates the logical law of non-contradiction. Uh, now, in David's uh, opening speech, he actually provided additional reasons uh, beyond just that one method. So I'm going to have to act on the fly to, to address those as well. But in the first place, that let's take this, this one issue that I was prepared for, that anyone who self-professes to be a Christian is a real Christian, therefore what they say constitutes real Christianity is valid. Um, so I wanted to just sort of ask, is this uh, one of the ways that you think is a valid way for determining what real Christianity is or it or isn't, David? I don't know. Um, so I've been, I've been trying to think about how I would answer that. And now that the moment is upon me, 
I'm not sure how to answer it. I, here's, here's how I would refine it. Um, I would say that whether or not the one professing to be a Christian is a real Christian or not is not, is not interesting to me. Hmm. Uh, I have no way of knowing whether that person is a real Christian or not. What I can say is the only criteria I have to evaluate whether a person is a Christian or not is by whether they say they are or not. So that doesn't, that's, that's slightly and subtly different from they are a real Christian. It's, it's just me saying that's the only way I can determine whether they are or not. If there are other ways of determining it, it they're not accessible to me. Okay, but you, but your your intro blog has provided some some means, um, whether successful or not, to do that. But um, well, okay, but I, so if I you... say that Christianity doesn't have orthodoxy in the way that Christians think they do, and so there is no orthodox Christianity. So I cannot, in fact, take a person's claims and look at their life and you know do mm -hmm. any methods and say, well, that doesn't match up with orthodox Christianity. I don't have an orthodox Christianity to match it up to. Okay, so so that would so then what is the relationship between a real Christian, given your thing, and and their relationship, their claims as to what real Christianity is? Then can can someone be a real Christian according to the the best of your lights? Uh, you know, just assuming that they're true. Um, What's the relationship towards proving that there is a re that their claims as to what real Christianity is or is not? Uh, what what's the validity of that? Could they be wrong, even if they're real Christians? Or sure, I, I suppose they could be. But I mean, the real the real question for me then would be who gets to judge whether they're real Christian or not. Um, I don't get to judge that. I don't have access to the tools that would allow me to judge that. So the only thing I can know is, well, that person said they're a real Christian. I can't prove that they're not a real Christian. And so I have to proceed as if they're a Christian. But why would you have to proceed that way? Because we, so one of the former questions I had is, we know that people get self-deluded or that people lie at times. Um, but I don't have access to whether they're self-deluded or whether they're lying. So wouldn't the prudent uh, position to hold would be agnosticism then? You wouldn't want to assume, okay, well, I can't tell if you're a real Christian or not, therefore I assume you are a real Christian, and I can use the doctrines that you give me to disprove that there is a real Christianity. We, we wouldn't be able to do that if you have no way of knowing. That's, that's sort of my... I don't think we can do that, and I don't think we do have a way of knowing. But I, the reason I would assume their claim as opposed to neutrality uh, is that I am a big proponent of self-identification and, and respecting people's self-report. Uh, and so I know that this is a, is, is a problem with Christians uh, today when they uh, come and issue transgender uh, issues. Uh, Christians insist uh, own, call a person a he or a she based on the 
uh, gender based on the the girl's sexual uh, uh, physical traits that that person was born with, and as if that Christian knows what uh, genitalia that person was born with. Um, but if, if a person says I'm a she, and the Christian thinks no, no, I think you're a, I think you're a man, the Christian has a problem with respecting uh, using the she pronouns, the feminine pronouns. And I do not have a problem with that. Uh, and so I, I believe in respecting a person's self-report. Uh, I don't have any reason to say you are not what you say you are. And if I don't have a reason to say that you're not what you say you are, I will just respect that you, uh, uh, you are what you say you are, at least from my, as far as my interaction with you, until I have a reason to think that that is not true. And even if I suspect it's not true, that's still not reason enough to disrespect your self-report. So um, let's let's use something that that is very uh, identifiable. Uh, let's say a person says that they are a Mason. Okay. Well, I don't know if they're a Mason or not. They might be lying. But until I know that they're lying, I'm going to uh, treat them like a Mason. However, a Mason is supposed to be treated. Now we can do some research and find out whether that person's a Mason or not, right? There is, there is, if I can use this word, orthodoxy to what a Mason is. Really? So you can figure it out. Interesting. Um, and until you, but until you do, if a person says they're a Mason, mm -hmm. and you don't have any way uh, of disproving that, what you should say is, "Howdy, Mason." <laughs> and that's how I treat Christians. Uh, if they say they're a Christian. I have no way of disproving that, so I'm going to treat them like a Christian. Okay, but so that's maybe a practical reason, but if, if we're going to make a, a claim, a theoretical claim, that there is no real Christianity, and that is based on the fact that I just take at face value people that claim to be real Christians, uh, and their ability to define what real Christianity is, is therefore valid. Um, that that's the way you would establish that there is no such thing as a real Christianity, and I, I just don't think that we can do that. Your, your, the true position would be agnosticism. Um, in the same way, if I self-identified as a scientist and hey, I'm I'm a physicist. The Earth is six thousand years old. The Earth is flat. Uh, that that doesn't say anything um, as to disqualify the fact that no, that there. The Earth is spherical. The Earth, the climate change is a real thing, um, it, and even if I claim to be a philosopher of science and and I said there is no such thing as the scientific method or or any scientific methodologies, they're they're all invalid. That that wouldn't take away from the fact that there is a real science. So that this is what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to divorce this this subjective state where you yourself admit that. Look, we, we can't know if someone is lying uh, or deluded. Uh, many people think they are real Christians, but might not be if there's an objective standard um, to compare it to. So that's. do you recognize the point that I'm saying, that we you can't make a positive claim if you can't, based on the claims of real Christians, if you can't know if they're real Christians or not? Well, yeah, so I'm, I'm not making a positive claim that they're Christians, though. That's why I say whether they're actually Christians or not is uninteresting to me.
Okay. I, I have no way of knowing that. But whether the only piece of evidence that I have access to is what they say they are. Now, I suspect you're going to argue, no, but we have other evidences. Correct. And as did you, by the way, in your, in your opening speech, I, I think, if I've understood you correctly. So I'm going to get to that. Um, I, I think you would say we do have an objective standard. Well, actually, I'm saying we don't have an objective standard for in, in the case of Christianity. So, uh, yeah, there's if, if there was something called orthodoxy, then we would have an objective standard, perhaps. But because there isn't any ortho, Christian orthodoxy, we don't have an objective standard. And so one person's claim of being a real Christian, from my perspective, is just as good as another person's claim of being a real Christian. Sure, I, I would agree. I would agree with that. Um, without an objective standard, they're just as good. But I, I'm just trying to hammer home that your, your claim doesn't follow um, based on, it doesn't follow from just using a practical you, we have a practical reason to just take people at their word. Um, if you're going to prove there's no Christianity because real Christians adopt contradictory positions, you would have to establish that the two people advancing the contradictory propositions are in fact real Christians. And, and that, that was really the fundamental point that I, I wanted to get across. Um, right, but I, that's not really the point that uh, I made, though, in my introduction. So... I, I spent time explaining why I don't think, uh, or what I think orthodoxy is, and why, and I gave some examples of why I don't think Christianity fits that bill. Yeah, you did. Uh, I'm going to get so, next. you know, I, I think that maybe a good place to go would be for you to tell me where you think I'm wrong. <laughs> so. Yeah, so, so, great. So, so we would agree that that method solely does not establish the claim. Um, but you do have other things. So, for example, there is an objective standard. In order for someone to be a real Christian and representing orthodoxy, it must be intentional um, and original. So, in terms of intentionality, um, inten intentional by whom? Maybe it's, it's intended by God, uh, the orthodoxy that we have, even if it's not intended by any person. Um, wouldn't... wouldn't God's intentions count for fulfilling this criterion? Well, you have to pretend to know God's intentions. Um, so I don't, I don't presume to know that, and I know a lot of Christians do presume to know that because they presume to speak for God. But when I'm just reading the New Testament and I look at the character of Jesus and the things that he was meant to have said and did, I have to ask myself, is this the behavior in speeches of a person who is intentionally trying to establish an institutional church? And, and the answer I keep coming up with is no, it is not. Okay, um, and the, ne the next part of that same thing is it, it has to be original. This was something that you repeated a couple times, that it, it has to be, what orthodoxy is defined is it has to be all in the founder. There couldn't, there can't be any advancements or developments to that. So can I can I sure. refine that a little bit? Sure. Because yeah. even um, uh, even after I wrote that, I, I realized there was some room for refinement. Okay. So I, I still stand by that, but I would say that uh, in orthodox, if you'll allow me uh, to talk about the yeah. U.S., the United States, as a an institution. Absolutely, yeah. Just as, as, an, as an example, sure. 
um, you know, there was a constitution by the founders. Uh, and so we can get uh, idea of original intent and things like that. But there was also built into that constitution a way to amend it, uh, a, a way to change and grow, if you will. Uh, and so I, rec- I do recognize that later additions can be orthodox if it is a part of an orthodox method of uh, growing that, uh, changing that institution. So within the Constitution, within the founding of the country, there is a way to add to or amend orthodoxy. Gotcha. And in Christianity, there is not. Well, see, okay, so yeah, that that was my my point. Is, is I think that there there is they they do uh, allow for amendments or progressive revelation to come about. So. For example, uh, what, yeah, so I, I got to phrase this as a question because I'm, I'm sincerely seeking. I'm not trying to get to or anything. It's, so, a, it's okay. What, I don't, okay, I don't so, mind being got. No, no, but I don't <laughs> want to do that. I want to take... Come at me, bro. No, I don't want to do that. I, I'm trying to make an illustrative point for the audience. I want to take your idea seriously and see if I can prove it correct or not. Um, so, okay, so if that's the case, what, what do you make of things like Jeremiah 31, which, which do speak of future developments, the... In the end times, the, the laws are not all of the Old Testament laws are olam, which is Hebrew for forever. Um, certainly in the New Testament, Paul sees this. He, he can't accept Christianity until he realizes, oh, he's, he's risen from the dead. He truly is the Messiah. We're living in the Messianic era. Therefore, the old criticisms against it don't apply in this era. It's a different, we're in different circumstances. And the New Testament um, the Old Testament anticipates this, and the New Testament affirms that there can be progression. And, and Jesus himself um, says that, "Look, I'm not giving you everything. I'm I'm going to give you the give the apostles the Holy Spirit to guide them into truth um, for for future developments in church history." So, yeah, like my my question is like, well, how how do you address these things that are inbuilt in the the Bible that do anticipate? change well that's a fair question but i don't take the bible as a whole mm. as you do so you're treating the gotcha. bible as if it were a single uh document breathed from god mm. uh and so you're not you're not actually thinking about what jeremiah said you're thinking about what god said through jeremiah mm. and i don't i don't see it that way so i don't see jeremiah for instance as an authority who can suggest that there will be change that, that there will be change in the future. I, I see God himself as authority who says, uh, I am the same today, yesterday, and forever. Um, I see God as an authority that says this will be an eternal covenant. Um, you know, and so I don't, I don't actually recognize uh, the, the progressive aspect um, of, well, some of these things are going to change. Just look at what this prophet said. In the same way, I don't recognize changes that Paul uh, seemed to be making on the fly either. Uh, so I know that we, uh, you know, there's there's a place to talk about uh, authority and who has the right to to make these changes. But there was nothing in any original document that said, uh, you know, this is how change will happen and these are the people who can do it. 
uh, and so forth. This is just someone coming along thousands of years later saying, hey, you know, uh, things are going to change. That, that's, that's not the same thing as having an inbuilt method uh, of uh, amending orthodoxy uh, similar to our constitution. Although I would, I would say, just to get one little barb in as a, as a joke, Paul did self-identify as a Christian, so therefore his opinion did matter to what real Christianity is. But we've sure, covered that but point. Not just, not just any Christian can make the I kinds know, of changes I... and pronouncements that Paul made. So, gotcha. Oh, I, fair I, point, fair Paul, point. I, just for the audience, Paul is probably going to be a subject of another one of my uh, topics uh, this year and why, yes. why I think Paul was an idiot. But yeah, I, I think that before you can point to, well, this passage here says this, I mean, that passage didn't exist when Genesis was written. Uh, that passage didn't exist for the hundreds, possibly thousands of years people were reading the Pentateuch. Uh, and so who died and uh, said Jeremiah could come along and change things? Gotcha. And Okay, uh, so so yeah, um, that's a fair point, and we're we're gonna get into the the Bible because at some point I I am gonna put on my Christian hat and and say what I said in the blog where I think, yeah, it, it's a question who who says about the Bible being united and all of that. I'm I'm just a seeker. Okay, fair point, um, but I, okay, so how do you you make you're making the claim here, and you're saying that orthodoxy must be original. It must be all contained. In the original founder, um, yes. how do you, how do you make that claim? Like, why why couldn't it be? Maybe I can't prove that the Bible is a united whole and that Jeremiah is a is a prophet in a progressive stream of revelation. But how how do you prove that it's not that that's not the case? That it has to go back, whoever the writer of Genesis was, pretending that was the first book chronologically written. Um, which it wasn't. Which it wasn't, right? But let's pretend it was. Um, why does the why does how do you know that the guy who wrote Genesis has to say everything? Yeah, talks about Jesus, the resurrection. Why why does he have to say everything? Uh, I think if you're going to say this is the foundation of a religion or, or an institution, if I can use that word a little bit more broadly, this is the foundation of an institution, then you have to sketch out the institution I, I mean mm. otherwise it's it, it, there's no that idea has no meaning at all um, you know I, I don't we can we can talk about an institution that kind of organically happens over time but then you don't you, you, you don't get to talk about orthodoxy Right, so I'm not, I'm not saying that every institution has orthodoxy, but every orthodoxy started off intentionally. And once again, it's, it's one, of the, one of the reasons why I say there are religions that definitely uh, fall in the category of having orthodoxy. Christianity just isn't one of them. Okay, that, the way you phrase that is a very interesting point. So, okay, in the first place, though, you, you would agree... The foundations, their very inherent nature, don't um, include everything. I mean, buildings are built on top of foundations. The foundation isn't the building. So, right, but the but the blueprint is. So the the architect's drawing is in fact uh, orthodoxy. 
um, uh, and that that includes the foundations and the structures and the uh, you know the support places and the, you know the, the closets. And it doesn't mean that the building is going to go up exactly the way the blueprint is. You may run into problems along the way, and uh, in that case, you have to make some changes. But you can't call those changes orthodoxy. <laughs> those changes were things that you had to do along the way. You might have to make more changes even after the building was built. But the claim, the Christian claim of orthodoxy is not some practical claim. It's actually an impractical claim. It's the claim that we are doing and saying the right things because this is how God intended it to be from the start. That is the whole reason for claiming that you have the orthodox view. And so, uh, yeah, that, definitionally, that is what the Christian is saying, that this was the original intent. And I am saying that's batshit crazy, because you have no idea what the original intent is. And if, if, you're, if you're not hearkening back to the original intent, then shut up about orthodoxy. And if, and if it was allowed to change somewhere along the line to fit what you're now thinking is the right way of thinking, then it's allowed to change later. So someone can come along and say, okay, yeah, maybe it wasn't originally intended to allow homosexuals, but now it is. Who are you to say uh, to shut the door on orthodoxy, to shut the door on the changes that you like? It's, if it's a progressive revelation, it can keep progressing. Gotcha. Okay. Um, okay, so I think I've got two more things um, to go as a seeker here. Um, okay. I, and I can do more if, if you've got if you think I missed something that's really important to probe you on as a seeker. Um, okay, so here's one thing that we were discussing pre-show, and you bring it up in your last response about orthodoxy is the institution. And you and I fundamentally disagree on that. When I, when I think of real Christianity or orthodoxy, I'm thinking set of propositions or beliefs uh, do or doctrines, uh, as well as practices um, that may be included in a set called real the real Christianity set. Uh, you don't think that way. You you think more a real Christian or a real Christianity is constituted by a physical, concrete institution of some sort. Um, in the first place, did did you want to sort of just highlight what? Okay, well, what what is the difference, and and why do you prefer uh, looking at orthodoxy as an institution as opposed to what seems to be the case in the New Testament, uh, a set of beliefs, you have to believe that Jesus is X, Y, and Z, uh, and you have to be willing to obey and, and repent and that sort of thing. What, why do you prefer this institutional definition as the proper one for orthodoxy? Okay. Um, I'm going to jump in my notes to my last point. I might swing back around and examine this more fully. Okay. Uh, but I think the question kind of demands that uh, I, I pick that out uh, right now. Okay. So um, if you look in the, the uh, point, it's not actually my last point, my point three in the uh, addendum that I gave you, mm -hmm. um, I talk about different kinds of uh, or, or competing orthodoxies. Um, so let me let me just go over that a little bit sure uh, to as a foundational answer so um I, I write that catholic orthodoxy is not the same as christian orthodoxy what i mean by that i'm not saying that catholics aren't christians i'm saying the 
institution of the Catholic Church does not constitute the Christian religion. Do, do, do you understand the distinction there? Uh, so say that, say that again, sorry. The institution of the Catholic Church does not constitute the Christian religion. Okay, okay, yeah. It, it, is, a, it is a self-contained institution within Christendom. And Catholicism definitely has orthodoxy. Uh, I, I think that I think we could make the case, at least for a lot of elements of Catholicism, uh, qualifying as you know Orthodox Catholic teaching. You know, we can. It's not it's not oxymoronic to talk about Orthodox Catholic teaching. Um, but that competes with uh, the broader sense of Christian Orthodoxy in many in many characteristics. Uh, and your understanding uh, of what is correct doctrine. So you talked about a set of propositional truths. Well, every Christian, every individual Christian has a unique set of propositional truths. I think that we could find that unique set. In fact, I've done this experiment a few times in, in congregations. Um, if you get a room full of Christians to write out 10 things that they think are fundamental to the Christian faith, top 10, it's a different list with everybody. And if you get conversations going, everybody will disagree with some point in someone else's list. No two people are going to agree. That's just limiting it to 10. If you, if you stretch it out to 100 propositional truths, the Christianities would look very different. And so when you talk about propositional truths individually, everyone has their own sense of what is and isn't orthodox. But those competing orthodoxies individually do not constitute what is actually orthodox within a religion. Uh, that, that just constitutes your list of what you think uh, is important. Um, and so, uh, never mind okay. my last point there. Um, just to kind of swing back around to your question, why am I focused on institutions? Because I think that's the only way we can talk about orthodoxy in a uh, meaningful way. Otherwise, we're just talking about individual lists that are competing and incompatible. And in that way, no one is in a better position than anyone else to claim orthodoxy. Uh, in fact, I don't. When people talk about orthodoxy, they're not just saying I'm right as opposed to you being right. They're saying that I am in line with the original teachings and intent of uh, Jesus. That's what they're trying to say. Um, and so likewise, a denomination, um, I'm going to call the Catholic Church a denomination, I know that might have been then, uh, but a denomination can't claim orthodoxy either, as in, you know, the way my denomination did when I grew up. They would have said, yeah, we are, we're the orthodox church. No, you're not. <laughs> uh, even if you were right about nine out of ten things. Uh, that doesn't make you orthodox. Uh, you don't define orthodoxy. And so the only way to really talk about orthodoxy is in uh, the grand scheme of uh, an institution. It seems like everything else is just kind of a, a cheat to get around that. Okay. Okay. Um, so I'll, I'll just give a, a bit uh, of my thing here before I ask the next question. So I actually disagree. I, I agree with David. Uh, so I'm speaking as Dale the Christian here, just temporarily. Um, 
I actually agree with David that there is um, the church manifests itself in concrete institutions. Um, however, I think that real Christianity, there's the universal invisible church. And that's that's what the Bible speaks of when it talks about the church or members of the body of Christ. Um, and this individual members are members of this universal church in light of subscribing to certain essential doctrines of, of Christianity proper um, as, and any practices and anything that constitutes Christianity proper. Uh, so the institution, the physical institutions are, are very downplayed for, for my point of view. I don't think they're as important and especially in the early church. I mean, institutions along the lines that David was talking about didn't really come along until the second century. That's when it started really getting formalized. Late first century, early second century is when we start getting together around these these formal institutions. Whereas I think before that it was a lot more decentralized and, and the concept of real Christianity, the essential doctrines of Christianity proper are what united the church, whether you're in Corinth or Jerusalem or Ephesus, it didn't matter. Um, you know, it, obviously they this universal invisible church manifested invisible local churches. So these are the technical terms um, and how you organize that and that wasn't as important. Um, it was more about the essential doctrines and living a good Christian life and that sort of thing. But Put, putting back on my my seeker hat because it, it's about probe this is David's claim so it's about probing that so in the first place you, you would agree would you agree that if Christianity is institutional real Christianity is institutional would that mean anyone outside so let's let's say that's the Catholic Church for the sake of argument would that mean it would be impossible for anyone outside the Catholic Church to be a real Christian? Well, so let me answer your question with a question, and then I'll swing back and answer it with an answer. Sure. Um, if uh, Judaism was institutional, would that mean that someone not not circumcised as a Jew, uh, does that mean they weren't a real Jew? I'll answer that for you. Yes, they were not a real Jew. <laughs> so um, there, there were boundaries to what it meant to be a Jew. It wasn't this, this ethereal, uncertain, kind of mystical thing. It was a very institutional thing. Uh, and Christianity followed uh, closely behind Judaism in this way. So I don't, I don't think it's all that different in that sense. So um, institutionally, I mean, you can say, well, there's, there's the church uh, the invisible uh, universal church, but there was there's always been kind of a debate in church as to so do you need to be a part of an institution to be a part of the church? And for most of my life, the answer has been yes uh, to that question because uh, God didn't just create a universal, ethereal, invisible church. He instantiated that uh, with institutions. And so you can't just take the uh, the mystical part of it without the physical part of it. Correct. It, the, out of necessity to operate on a human level, there does need to be that visible local church, that that um, 
and Catholics would say a visible universal church, obviously, but uh, there does need to be that visible manifestation in order for it to, on a practical level. But that's not that's not what it means. That's not what the Bible is is speaking of when it speaks of the body of Christ or or being an an official member. I I think that your institutional view. Sorry, yeah, I'm not the Christian yet. Um, okay. that's, that's, that's fine, though. I think I, I think it's useful to hash this out because this is an important distinction. Um, yeah. I, I think it is important. I don't, I don't think you can separate it the way a lot of Christians try to separate it. Um, it's a little bit like, um, you know, when I was a Christian, I, I believed in duality, body and spirit in spirit, physical and spirit, and when the Bible talked about one, it wasn't excluding the other. Uh, you know, you can't be um, spiritually pure and also an adulterer. Uh, you know, you can't, you can't join your body with prostitutes and your spirit with God. Right. Uh, they, yeah. they go together. Uh, and so, in the same way, the church... Um, you know, you can say, well, it has a spiritual component, but it is a physical entity. Right, but it's it's a there was the intra interconnectivity of of the early church. It was beyond just the little physical institutions. That we are united internationally in in the early church, for example, and tr all true Christians. If if there if there is an objective standard of what constitutes real Christianity, um, then that transcends the fact that I'm at a Baptist church or at a den whatever denominational church or that sort of thing. So that there's a set of requirements. Um, and if you meet that, then that transcends the, f the need for the the particular physical yeah, I, manifestation. Once, once again, my particular, uh, this is not a debate that we will settle today, but my particular flavor of Christianity would disagree with that. Yeah, and I'll, uh, and I'll say my, so, my own church agrees with you, by the way. They, they, you need to be a member of a local church because that's the, you know, the, the same meaning for um, church in the Greek um, comes from the root yeah. synagogue, an assembly. It's, an, it's a like visible friend, assembly. Ecclesia. Yeah, Ecclesia, that's it, yeah. Um, okay, perfect, but I, that's fine. Um, I disagree. And, and so, it will, and just to add a little bit of color to that, one of the reasons it has to be that way, um, by, by those of us who think that that's what the Bible was getting at, is uh, that's where the uh, other parts of the organization are. That's how you attain the spiritual blessings is through the, the physical church if you're if you're not in a right oh, uh, a physical church with a right relationship you're not going to receive any spiritual blessings right and it, uh, it's mandatory so, for, to take right. part in communion or something right so, you're right you don't you don't get the benefits of communion by taking it by yourself on an island exactly yeah um i, I would agree 100 percent with that that the physical manifestation part is necessary, but being a member for self, the purposes of well, but, self if, but if you're part of an apostate church, that would be the same. That would be a similar problem. And so it, it absolutely does matter what 
kind of institution you've attached yourself to. So if you're part of an apostate institution, you just as well be a Satanist calling yourself a Christian. I don't think so. I, I think if you if you're like an individual Catholic or something in a in a product if you believe Catholicism or something and you're at mid, you're at a Baptist church, as long as long as you meet the minimal require the essential requirements for being a Christian, that that transcends. It doesn't matter which church you're you, sitting you in. You understand that there are a number of Baptists, probably some even in your church. Who would disagree with that? They would. They yes. think of the Catholic Church as a great Satan, and if yes. you are in that church, no matter what minimal requires you met, you are in fact in an apostate church that is opposed to God, and it's not enough to simply say, "Well, you're part of the Church Universal." Gotcha. Yep, and you're absolutely right. They would say that. So, so that leads to my next my next question. It's based on what you said. Remember, you said um, if people, if you sat down ten Christian Christians. Uh, and they wrote down 10 doctrines, none of them would agree. Um, okay, so why... So it's, it's never happened in my experience, anyway. Okay, um, so why 10, though? Why why not 3? Maybe if you had 3 uh, doctrines, um, and they five. would agree. You've done 5, and none of, none yes. of them agreed. Um, okay, and obviously there are reasons for that. What are they thinking? I, I, bet, I bet you... I could find five doctrines that all Christians, if I wrote down five doctrines and said, do you guys agree with these? I could find five where at the very least, the vast majority of self-professing Christians would say, yep, I concur with that. So I, I could. If you, if you use the uh, resources of the internet, you know, you can, you can find a hundred people who will agree with that. But if you're talking about the resources of a local church, these are the 40 people that came to Bible class this morning. Um, it's, it's hard to find that. Right, but that that would it depends what you mean. That would be their their fault, um, possibly, right? Because I I don't know what you like. If I said everyone agrees that First Corinthians is a, is a divinely inspired book, I bet you all Christians or the vast majority of self-professing Christians would be saying, yeah, um, that's yes, something. Yes, I think so. But m none of but most of them wouldn't have that on their list of essentials. Uh, oh, but yeah, okay. if, yeah, you, yeah if, you, if you kind of throw that in, they would say, yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's true. Gotcha. So, okay, so I guess it comes down to how do we determine what the essentials are or aren't. Um, and we've, we've already established that the main way of just taking people, Christ, self-professing Christians at their world, word as to what those essentials are is not good enough. There could be any number of reasons as to why there's disagreement um, beyond even the ones I mentioned, them lying uh, or deluded. Um, it, there could be any number of reasons as to why they're wrong as to what the essentials are. So I think that we do need some kind of objective standard to come, come up with. Oh, okay, last question. You, you also claimed uh, that there needs to be a degree of permanence. Um, yes. And I took that to mean or you sort of downgraded oral tradition and you're, I take it to mean there has to, it has to be in writing um, in some yes. form. Okay. Yeah. Uh, when you say downgraded oral tradition, you're, you're not stating it strongly enough. I, I despise oral tradition and I, I just don't think 
much of it as any kind of way to do reliable history on things that matter a lot. Uh, so I understand that oral tradition is all we have for a, a lot of history. Right? So I get that, but I don't base my I don't base my life on what I think someone may have said that's been passed down through oral tradition. Okay, um, but if the claim is that orthodoxy doesn't exist because in the early church it wasn't written, at least until a couple decades after, I think 49 AD is our first writing. Uh, certainly Jesus, yeah. that we know of, Jesus didn't write anything himself, uh, and he's the founder. Yeah, so. whatever, whatever he supposedly wrote in the dirt, uh, in the case of the adulterous woman, in, in a story that didn't actually happen. Yeah, that's the only writing we have of Jesus. Gotcha. So, so how do you prove? I I don't believe this criterion. How how do you establish that you it has to be in writing, in order for it to count as orthodox? Certainly, there could be wow. orthodox. It might not be useful for us the oral tradition today, but who cares? Orthodoxy. He was still teaching orthodoxy orally to people then and there. And okay. Then, so I I don't mind giving making that concession okay. that someone could be passing along correct orthodoxy through oral tradition. My, my main point is that we don't have access to it today. So uh, you can speculate that oral tradition carried some form of orthodoxy, but you can't test it against anything. And you can't trust it to have remained uh, pure over time. So there's, there's no way for you to go back uh, in, in work against to find the what was originally said by anyone uh, in a reliable enough way to claim that one opinion is orthodox versus another. Gotcha. Because but, there were a, there were lots of oral traditions, so gotcha. Um, okay. Uh, you know, you, you don't you don't have any way of, of sorting that out for us today. Sure. As a seeker, happy to say okay. Um, but still, in terms of the claim that you're conceding, there. Was orth orthodoxy could take the form of oral tradition, but it's only good for those people back then. It, it's, yeah, okay, I, cool. I, I can see that. Okay, uh, cool. it's, it's it's certainly possible to transmit uh, for a short period of time over a short distance. Gotcha. Perfect. Uh, okay, so so I think that's it um, in terms of Dale being a seeker here, unless. Is there is there anything that you think I that's important that I missed on probing you about? As as I said, I wasn't trying to be challenging. I hope I've come across as trying to help you spell out what what is your case for for the audience. Right. Gotcha. No, I think I think that fleshes uh, I think that fleshes my ideas out, and it, it at least gives a listener an understanding of why I think Christianity does not qualify as uh, orthodox or why claims of orthodoxy don't apply to Christianity. Now, it's, it's, there's plenty of room for people to disagree, but I, I just wanted to lay out my case. Yeah. Uh, and if you want to directly attack some of that, uh, feel free, or I will be glad to lay out the next plank of my case. Oh, so there's, okay, there's more, there's more to it then. Um, well, so, yeah, so there, there's, some some discussion some some things that I can flesh out so that that is the foundation of my case but so let me let me just go to point number two in my notes um, okay. and this will give you a little bit more to work with uh, I think 
so I think one of the reasons for me anyway, why, why it took me so long to come to this uh, conclusion on orthodoxy is because I was conflating a lot of things with orthodoxy. And I, I think that is the mistake that uh, maybe even some listeners are making now. And so let me just let me just uh, flesh that out a little bit by saying what orthodoxy is and what orthodoxy is not. So what orthodoxy is, in, in short, the, the bumper sticker for orthodoxy is it is that which was intended. Okay, so if we, if the reason Christians make the claim that mine is the orthodox view is that they're trying to say their opinion is more right than yours because it's what was originally intended. So let's let's just set that aside. I think that what people get confused with are other things. For instance, mainstream is not orthodoxy. Mainstream is just what's popular. What's popular has nothing to do with what was intended. So we can we can really throw that out, and a lot of people get get very confused about the you know a mainstream doctrine. I don't care what the mainstream doctrine is, and I think that you're the same way. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, that you don't <laughs> you don't actually care what the mainstream doctrine is. You care what the correct doctrine is. The only, the only um, caveat I would say is uh, number so number one, you you would have to care what the mainstream is if you're taking this self-professing Christianity is is the means, but. You're right, absolutely. The mainstream is not necessarily the same as Orthodox. A hundred years from now, we could all think we could all be Jehovah's Witnesses. We are not Orthodox Christians, um, even if ninety-nine percent of people who say they're Christians think so. But but the mainstream right. could be. It, I guess it's no. Okay, so forget about the mainstream then. Yeah, on your next point, I'll, I'll make a yeah. So the, the next point is a little bit more uh, fine, I think. It's um, the traditional uh, or historic view. This is often conflated with orthodoxy, too. So we, we confuse what is old uh, with what is orthodox. Now, I agree that orthodoxy needs to be old. Um, but old gets you close. It doesn't get you orthodox. There's a difference between old and original. So, for instance, the Catholic Church, I think, um, is is old, right? I think it's got some of the oldest traditions. But I don't think that many of their views are anything like what was originally intended by anybody. But they are, but they are old and historic. And so I. Um, when people start talking about the, the historic Christian faith, you know, I, I feel much the same way about that as I do the mainstream Christian faith. Uh, yeah, okay, it's historic. Uh, it's old, but it's not original. Um, and it's not what was necessarily intended. And so I'm not entirely sure that I care what people in the third century thought about a first century religion. Yeah, my my only my only qualifier to that is I, I do think that you you're technically correct, but I use tradition and you know historical tradition and that sort of thing as it an indicator. It it might be suggestive if so. For example, one of the reasons I think when I get into my Christian case after you're done with this, I think the Bible is divine revelation. That this 
And one of the reasons I think the Bible is sufficiently attached is because it's the traditional or historic position of, of the church. So I think it can be used as an indicator and evidence if it's attached to some kind of theological argument that brings that fact significance. But in and of itself, you're, you're correct. Just because it's a traditional or historic perspective doesn't mean it's orthodox or correct necessarily. Okay, so uh, challenging, uh, making it a little bit more challenging. Uh, what is practical is often conflated with mm -hmm. what is orthodox. Uh, and so an, an example of practical utilitarian versus orthodox would be uh, how, what is the age of the earth? Uh, well, the practical Christian says <laughs> yeah, it's, it's 4.7 billion years. <laughs> Let's, let's, let's be serious. Um, however, the original view, uh, as laid out in the Bible, is some age much, much younger. And so you can, you can say, well, but this practical view is right, and therefore it must be what, what the authors meant. But you're, you're reading back into a thing um, uh, and you're, you're using your practicality as a substitute for orthodox, and that doesn't work. Um, that's that's not true orthodox. And the same point, I think, even uh, more challenging is the the updated or corrected or contemporary view. You can use the same example that I gave, but I used homosexuality earlier. Uh, you know, we can uh, we can see something awful that the Bible said. Uh, maybe slavery is a, is a good time to insert slavery here. We can look at the Old Testament on slavery. We can look at the New Testament on slavery. Neither one of them frees the slaves uh, or says that you shouldn't own slaves. And yet Christian, Christians today insist that the Bible teaches that you shouldn't own slaves. Well, what they have done is they've updated the material. And they've corrected it, in, in my opinion. The contemporary view is the better view. But it's not orthodox. Um and so uh, it's, it's another example of a way that we can read back something into the text and falsely claim orthodoxy where there was no orthodoxy there. Gotcha. Oh, um, okay. Uh, yeah, I guess I'm never going to get out of the seeker mode, but I, I actually do. Uh, I missed something that, that I felt was important that I jotted down here. And it's, you, okay. made a, you, you made a point about private versus public. So Orthodoxy has to be accessible to the skeptic, to the non-Christian or the non-insider. Um, I wanted to probe on that. How, how do you know that? Because it, it seems to me, it, certainly the, the Bible tells us that the essential truths of the gospel are just not accessible to the, the foolish. Uh, what's, what's the, you probably know the words in Romans, why? Like it calls you guys yes, darkened yes. hearts and, and, it, and that's what yeah, it's uses a lot of at home and uh, hate speech personal attacks I know right but the, uh, the, the point is we'll, just we'll talk Paul sometime, don't <laughs> <worry>. <laughs> aside from the ad the ad hominem the, the point is it, it's making the point that it's not accessible to to outsiders so how do you yeah. prove that uh, cer certainly Christians have the help of the Holy Spirit opening their eyes and that sort of thing so how do you how do you make the argument or the claim that Orthodoxy has to be objective, objectively known by people, as opposed to being subjectively known. It seems perfectly 
it's, cohesive? It's a fair question, but I think it's uh, a misguided question. So I, uh, I will acknowledge that on the surface, it is a good question. Hmm. Um, but here's the problem. Uh, Orthod- we're, we're talking about Christianity, and we're entering an area where special pleading is, I think, about to happen. And I, I want to steer us away from that, because if we're talking about any other institution, we wouldn't grant that they get some secret method of, uh, of knowing their truth. So Christians debate Muslims all the time, and they do so on the basis of what the Quran says. If, if it, if the, the Muslim could simply say, well, yes, but you can't read the Quran properly because the Holy Spirit, or whatever the Muslim version of that, hasn't interpreted to you correctly. But we think that we can read it properly. We, we think that if this, is the, if this is the constitution that you're drawing from, your constitution should be readable by everybody. Um, other, uh, it, I use uh, you know, the, the United States as, as kind of my stand-in example here. Other countries can look at our constitution and know when we are violating our own laws. And they can call us on the carpet for that. It's not some secret private revelation, but the Christian wants to have a, a, a secret way so that nobody can call them on the carpet and hold them accountable uh, when, they're, when they're going offline um, and say, yeah, well, but you can't understand it because you're an outsider. So it doesn't matter, matter how much you read the book. I, and I'll just, I think Christians do say that, but I think that's a bogus argument. And I'm, I'm just going to flip on Dale the Christian's hat for a second. I actually agree 100% with David. I, I disagree with Dale the Seeker, uh, his question here. Um, so it's a fair question for a seeker, but as, as a Christian, no. I, I think in order for you to be a real seeker, that the ascent, at least the essential doctrines have to be understandable in order to assess is this true or not. Um, so it does have to be understandable to um, to skeptics, uh, in, or at least the, the mechanism for them to be able to understand it. They don't necessarily have to understand it in real life, through, and that would be through their own fault or that sort of thing. But God has to provide the means for them to know, to if they're a real seeker, to find out what are the essential doctrines of Christianity proper, or real Christianity as David calls it, uh, and be able to assess that. Is, is that true or not? Um, so Dale the Christian agrees with David the Skeptic um, yeah, on that one. So, yeah, good All stuff. Right. So, so take it away. Uh, Dale any the dismantling of my uh, argument? That's my, that's my case. Um, yeah. you, know, I, I, you know, there are other things that I could say, but I, I think it's a solid case at any rate. So tell, tell me why I'm wrong. Sure. So, so as as uh, Dale the Christian now. So, here's why you're wrong. Um, because I think that God has provided us uh, an objective means um, through which we can discern what is uh, Christianity proper, what the essential doctrines are uh, for Christianity, and this would constitute a a true or real Christianity, and would help us discern who's in or out of that. Uh, in light of those objective criteria. Um, and, and just so you know, if I agreed with that above statement that God had provided that, I would I would agree that my case is bogus and you win. 
Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that a lot of people can stop listening at this point because they think that they agree with you. God has provided the material and people who don't think that the Bible is God inspired um, are simply not going to agree. And so there's a superficial way to just shortcut the debate right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's let's see if we can get beyond that superficial thing, though. Cool. Okay. Um, so, so in the first place, um, just stating uh, this in or out thing, you, obviously you admit uh, the Bible itself, the New Testament writings itself, portray clear cases of these guys are out, these guys going to hell. Um, <laughs> um, you know, these are fake Christians or false teachers, and, and I give in my blog several examples of that. So there were so least... can I put, can, I don't know I don't know if I agree with that statement as it's made. Okay. I agree that there are people that Paul invade against. But again, we're we're assuming that Paul gets to say who is and who isn't a real Christian. Okay. So and there were some ins- people that Paul seemed to think were real Christians that if, if I saw those people in a church today, I would think you're not a real Christian because you're. Uh, so I don't I don't know that I accept uh, out of hand that Paul's opinion on who was a real Christian and who wasn't constitutes uh, an authoritative statement on who was and who wasn't a real Christian. Gotcha. So, and it's it's based on the fact that he was an apostle. He had apostolic authority. He was an inspired person. Um, so, yeah. How, how do we know that? It it ultimately comes down to God has provided us divine revelation in the form of the Bible. Uh, so this carries with it the authority to define uh, and say who's in, who's out. Um, you know, and I, I provided an argument. I have three three reasons as to why. I, I, that was a different show where we, I think I covered that in the Sufficient Attachment show. Um, and I gave three reasons as to why the Bible as a whole, good, bad, the ugly, it, it is sufficiently attached to real Christianity. So you need to use that to define your terms as to what Christianity is or isn't. Now, the, the subject of uh, today's debate uh, d- discussion that I want to get David's critique on is okay. Well, how do we use the Bible to define what is real Christianity, what is fake Christianity? And my method is, or my way of doing that, as I've outlined before on the show, is look. We let the Bible itself speak to us. So if if there is an explicit verse um, that says this is required for salvation. Uh, there are verses to that effect as opposed, you know, repent um, is a direct explicit command. Uh, believing Jesus ro- died uh, and rose from the dead is a are, are examples of explicit commands. Believe this or do this um, or be damned or, or you won't be saved. Do this to get eternal life. These are explicit things that we know, well, whatever else real Christianity is, it's, it is this. This is included in that set of propositions, beliefs, or, or um, practices that are required to be in versus out. Um, there's also implicit verses. So how do, I would actually say not being a, homose- not being a homosexual or not lying, um, are, or, or sorry, the intention not to, to sin in whatever form that sin is. These are implied 
through explicit teachings that say, you know, you have to obey um, the commands of Jesus uh, in order to be saved. You have to be willing to repent, turn 180, and commit yourselves to obeying the commands of God or Jesus. Um, we fall short of that, of course, but it, it's in the intention of being willing to obey Jesus in everything. Um, so by implication, the command to take part in communion, even though there, it isn't explicit, it doesn't say, take part in communion and you will have eternal life. It's implied based on the fact that there's an explicit command to, to follow Jesus, obey Jesus' commands to be saved. And then that implies, well, Jesus commanded take part in communion. Therefore, it's, it's essential that I'm, I take part in communion. Uh, as, a, as obeying that commandment. I can't just say, poof, I, I don't care about following that commandment. Um, so that that is that is what I think is it, such a simple method for determining what is essential or not. It doesn't involve any headcanon about, oh, well, I have a separate argument for biblical inerrancy, therefore everything in the Bible has to be essential. Um, no, you're, you're going beyond what the evidence is. At least my headcanon is is letting the Bible speak for itself. It's a minimalistic case. Uh, there, you know, it, it doesn't exclude Christians based on secondary doctrines and that sort of thing. It, it just it says whatever real Christianity is, we know a hundred percent it is this. Um, so we do have a way for adjudicating and separating people out. Um, yeah. That, that's sort of my method as to how I think the essential doctrines and practices um, of Christianity proper should be defined. And I'll turn it over to okay. you, David. Yeah. What's, uh, what's wrong with that? Yeah, well, I disagree, <laughs> I think. Um, so uh, I think there are very few places where the Bible lays out very specific doctrines and says believe this and do that or else yeah um so you know if you if you try to collect all of the places where you would say the bible says that you would maybe have a handful of of ideas loosely related ideas but you wouldn't have the christian religion you, you wouldn't have the church institution based on that right so I don't, I don't, I don't think that that criteria really works in the practical world that much. I mean, so you can say, well, yeah, for these handful of things, that definitely is a part of the institutional church, but it's not a big enough part of it to to form a church off of. So you got to, you got to go beyond that uh, if you're going to come up with the laws and bylaws and. It, it, I could use the word constitution, the creed of the Christian church. Right. So, but at, at the bottom line is number one, we've got a real Christianity. Even if there's only one proposition that constitutes real, real Christianity. Um, so there, there we've established that there is a real Christianity in this way as to whether well, we should go. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't think, I don't think that we have though. And I, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to give this argument of yours as much mm -hmm. do as I can. Um, you would have something, um, but you wouldn't have a religion. Um, 
so I don't I don't know what I would call the something that you have. We just take the handful of thou shalt and thou shalt nots and well, put them in a bag. I I don't know what you've got there. Um, Actually, we would have a, a religion, but it, this is a a point of how do you define what a religion is? And I I've put a lot of thought into this and looked at um, before I began my research. What is a religion? Because I, okay. my definition includes something like Taoism, but Confucianism that's not a religion. That's just a socio political philosophy or something. But um, yeah, my, my there's two two basic fundamental criteria. It, it uh, addresses uh, the ultimate reality, whatever that may entail. Um, so that includes Eastern religions, God of some sort in the Western religions. Um, and in, in, it describes our ultimate purpose uh, in the universe and how to achieve it. With these two facets, the you're a religion. If you address those two facets, then you can't qualify as a religion to me. And my my way of determining the essential doctrines of Christianity would fit that definition, if that makes sense. Okay. Well, uh, um, yeah. I mean, it makes sense. I just I find myself uh, a, a little un, unimpressed by your definition, though, of um, what. Religion. What constitutes orthodoxy? You know, the, it has to be a "thus saith the Lord." The Bible, Bible says this, or else you're going to go to hell. And I'm, I'm still stuck with the idea that, that those things are so few. Um, but that that's good. That, the, that's, the, the, the Christian, but the Christian religion is bigger, bigger than those things. And so those things somehow don't define the Christian religion that we have today. Um, and and. Furthermore, if it was that simple, we would have near 100% agreement within Christianity itself, and we do not. Right. Uh, Let me... And, and oh, so I don't, I don't, if you are right in your assessment, then almost everybody else is wrong. Well, believe, this is a common, common view. Marvin, for example, adopts this. Uh, Gary Habermas, William Lane Craig. I've provided charts. He he has his little circle chart where they all agree with me. So this is a common mainstream view um, that I'm advancing. Um, I, I yeah. So so yeah. yeah I, I mean, you can you can you can claim. Oh, that, so this is one of the objections that I've had to you uh, in the last season. Uh, I'm sure we'll do some more of it this season. But you you make this claim uh, that the, the tenets of the historic, never mind historic, of the Orthodox Christian faith, the the essentials are obvious that everybody knows them and everybody agrees with them, and that just fails on the basis of lived reality. The lived reality is there are over 30,000 Christian denominations in the U.S. alone. Um, and they do not all agree on what is essential. Um, the, the lived reality is, especially among us uh, skeptics uh, who aren't going to just one church, uh, is that Christians don't agree on very important things. And so it, it's there's not some simple formula out there uh that shows you what's important and what's not. Because if there is, you know, you've got to make the case then that all the Christians are stupid or something. They don't. They don't. 
they don't know what it is. Well, they, they uh, so my lived reality, and I think the lived reality of, of most people listening to this podcast, is that Christians do not agree on what is and what is not essential. And all of your protestations to the contrary just fall on deaf ears. Okay, so, but we've already seen that just looking at what self-professing Christians say is essential is, is not a valid way to establish that they're, what is or isn't real Christianity. That, we agreed on that at the beginning of the, the show, and it took, took away all my, I had all these questions to try and get to that point, but you just gave it to me. So that is irrelevant as to 30,000 That's me. Down. I'm a giver. No, well, no, thank you, because we're trying to get to truth. We're not trying to score points, I hope. Um, no. Um, so, Especially since I have all the points. So, I mean, I don't, I don't want to score any more points. Yeah, well, I, I, don't think, I don't think you did, but, um, I, like, I wasn't convinced by your, your reasons personally. And I, I was... You were too. You're a secret atheist. Come on. Um. <laughs> you weren't supposed to tell anyone that. Come on, man. Um, Sorry. Um, but but yeah, so with with my method, um, I I think this is clear. G- given that we can establish the Bible sufficiently attached, and like I said, that's a presupposition. And I, if I were putting uh, my notes, I would just give that as presupposition in our other show. Then using right. the Bible to define what is essential and what is not is is perfectly sensible. I mean it. There's no other game. Yeah, it's perfectly in... sensible, but even the people who agree with you with sufficient attachment, as you know, I do not, uh, do not agree on what's uh, what's essential. So, but what are once the again, reasons... you're, just, you're just claiming that it should produce agreement that in reality it does not produce. But the, the reality is is irrelevant, right? Because we that's, that's why I, I gave that point that you were a giver on, because there can be any number of reasons why those 30,000 denominations, uh, and, and by the way, those 30,000 denominations probably have widespread agreement on the essential doctrines. The, yeah, except they don't have enough agreement to worship together. Correct. Uh, because so they, I, would, I would argue that their, their division is not just uh, apparent, it, it runs deep to the core. So, no, but it's, it's not. So, so David, one guy in my church had couldn't abide being in that church anymore he went and he actually started up his own denomination what was the reason oh because uh he changed instead of uh, there's an official title so instead of being a deacon in canadian law you have to be called an elder to be tax exempt or something and you're you're gonna call me an elder and not a deacon Uh, fine i'm out of here that is not an essential reason to split that's his fault that's him being stupid actually but he thinks it's an essential reason but it's, it's and I don't know that I don't know that he's wrong actually. Oh, okay, <laughs> just, well, just from the, well just from the, brief, you're, you're briefly talking about that. I don't think he's wrong. I, I okay. Well, I, I think we have a God has provided us a means or a mechanism for determining whether that guy is right or wrong. We well, have an objective if standard. Is, if the state is telling you what title you should be using for, uh, you know, officers that are uh, at least, mm-hmm. uh, you know, theoretically appointed by God, uh, then those people aren't really appointed by God. They're appointed by the state. If the state starts uh, giving you criteria for what a deacon can and can't be or 
what qualifies as a deacon, then you're not the church anymore. You're just a state institution. I agree with him. Gotcha. He should leave. <laughs> he, he did the right thing. But it's you not... have abandoned orthodoxy. Okay, but he would recognize that, no, he would not say that. He would not say it's an essential doctrine. It's just a matter of principle for him. Okay, well he may thing. not he may not say it, but if he just split the church over a non essential doctrine, then he's got to be stepping on another essential doctrine, which is uh, unity over division. It, for a church to divide and still stay somewhat consistent uh, with what they think the Bible says. It has to be over an essential doctrine, because division over non-essential doctrines isn't allowed. No, it 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 is actually. I, I this is where we find I'm much more American than you. I, I actually think that God, on secondary doctrines, things that are not identified, either explicitly or implicitly as being essential, we are we are allowed to have differences of opinion, and that could be good it, it practically speaking there are bad instances when it's mixed with sinful pride yes or that sort we're of thing. allowed to have but, differences of opinion we're not allowed to split the church over our differences of opinion this well, is the point uh well no we don't you know we're we're allowed to have differences of opinion you know between states in the united states of america we're not allowed to secede well first of all you you could be. I'm sure there's a, a formula if a state did want to secede. I, I remember no, her. there isn't. There isn't. The you... formula is war. <laughs> oh, seriously? I, there's no. Well, it, in, okay. Well, in Canada, we we have ability to uh, provinces have the ability to leave the union. Quebec's done it three it's times. I think the United so. States of America. <laughs> okay, no. I, well, I, I remember. It's not, like, it's not like Canada's a real country. I mean, no one's comparing you to anything. <laughs> well, I, I remember. <laughs> I remember hearing Texas at one time was doing something. Oh God, like Texas is always <laughs> making noise about. <them. laughs> okay, well, I don't We're know America. Country. There the, are many of us that wish the, Texas was a whole other country. The the point is though, <laughs> with people, individual Christians can see that unity is important. Yes, we. I think it's wrong to split the church over trivial matters like that. But even secondary issues can be important enough to create a new church in. There, there could be, and there's no problem with that. Like, for example, with there's confusion. Okay, okay well, does the Bible teach the ransom of theory? Claiming orthodoxy. But just, just back up for a second. You think that it's okay to split the church on secondary issues. But those churches that split are claiming orthodoxy. Yeah. The guy who walked out of your church believes that he has the need on the original intent of the church. And your church thinks that they have the bead on the original intent of the church. And you both think each other is wrong. No, but we're both orthodox. Given the Bible, the Bible would say that both are orthodox because that issue doesn't matter. Whatever side you're on, whether you want to call yourself a deacon or an elder, is not essential to salvation. Now, you are correct that I want to make this clear. I'm speaking as a minimalist. This is a minimalist definition. I obviously believe that the entire Bible is inspired. I, I believe Moses existed. But I think that someone can believe that Moses didn't exist and still be a real Christian because that's not an essential doctrine, even if it's very uh, probable. Wait, whoa, wait. I, so uh, just a quick call to the commenters. Christians, please please step up to the plate. Former Christians, please step up to the 
plate, Dale has just invited you to uh, engage in a poll. <laughs> do, do you believe that uh, Moses mythicism is a-okay? <laughs> It's not that so, I think it's not that I think it's a okay. So I I would put it. I think that would disqualify a person from Christianity. No, and it, it wouldn't. In the, the Christian, the type of Christian that I was, I would say that would, that would disqualify you. You're saying no, the Bible is lying about Moses. It, um, it would not. Yeah, you're not you're not a Christian. Okay, so but no, you're not. So the Bible the Bible I agree with you that the Bible teaches Moses was a real person. Um, if he wasn't, then that's an error in the Bible. But that someone can believe something erroneous um, and still be considered a Christian. We know that the yeah, New I, Testament... I'm just saying they couldn't believe that. <laughs> that. That would not be on the list of things where it's okay to be wrong about. But how do you determine that, though? See, this is the thing. I, I have my, my method for determining from the Bible itself. There's no verse that explicitly says you must believe in Moses to be saved or you must believe... Uh, that or or is implied like there's no verse that says you must believe in the historicity and act total accurate representation historically of every single figure in the Old Testament. Um, if you had something like that, then my method would say, yeah, believing in Moses is essential. Um, I I find that very problematic. I would agree with skeptics that the significance, if it turns out that Moses didn't exist. That would very probably, I'm 80% convinced that would prove Christianity is a false religion. So I'm on skeptic side on the majority part, but it's still there. You can't prove it's an essential doctrine. So it's possible that one could deny it and still be, still adhere to the essential doctrines of Christianity. Therefore, See, this you're... is why appeal, making appeals to the Bible for uh, what is uh, essential is, is almost fruitless because here you're saying, one of the more central figures to two religions, uh, it's okay to think that the Bible is lying about it and still be uh, in right standing with God. Yes. Um, and and I, if you can believe that the Bible is wrong about that and still be okay, then I don't see how you use the Bible at all to talk about what is or isn't orthodox. Because, because someone can just disagree with it, um, which, by the way, is what has happened over over history, which Lisa, is why we right? have so many denominations. And so it, it just—it's a meaningless exercise at that point to me. I don't—I don't even know what we're talking about. I don't know because, if I could because say, yeah, Moses wasn't real, but, but yeah, but it's okay. I, I don't want to get into repeating terms, but I have an argument. Remember, remember the undue confusion. This is an argument I adopted from an atheist philosopher, Michael Martin, who uses it. To attack Christianity, and it, it's this note—it's the notion of evaluating the significance in terms of undue confusion that allows us to give that allows me to give these grades to the significance. Um, no, I as I said, I, it's not just oh, it's a okay if Moses does no, very probably that's not a okay. That that would prove Christianity is false, and I'm no, 80%. no, I'm not saying that. I'm oh. saying that the person believing it is a okay in that oh, if they die believing that they'd still go to heaven, they're yes. still in good standing. Yeah, and I'm saying that the, that any church that I think of as Orthodox would consider that a heretic. Oh, okay, cool. That person would be speaking a heretical doctrine. He would be he would be um, you know a, a Martianite or worse. Okay, uh, I agreed. So, my my pastor would also say this, and he, he has said this. Um, so, great. 
I disagree. Um, we've, we've agreed and you've conceded and given to me that just appealing to self-professing Christians' opinions is irrelevant. So there has to be an objective reason. And what, so appealing to scripture is irrelevant too. <laughs> no, 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 no. But I, I want to hear what, what's your headcan? Remember, I, I asked you this before. So that there are, for example, Norman Geisler will appeal to a philosophical, logical argument, a deductive argument to try and prove that biblical inerrancy is um, based on God being a perfect, be maximally great being or perfect being. His revelation would have to be perfect. Um, and then he stopped short on saying perfectly preserved, which I think is his fault if it if it was perfect if it has to be perfect in the original it would have to be perfect in the preservation given his argument other christians have made deductive arguments well jesus taught it was uh taught biblical inerrancy therefore we ought to believe biblical inerrancy as well so the, these are a couple of ways that those christians that you're appealing to this is what they have in mind i say that biblical inerrancy is an essential doctrine because i've got this argument whether it's conscious on their part or sub subconscious, they've, they've got this notion and, and that's what's, you know, you've got to spell that out. And I think when you do that, you find that the premises are false. Therefore, any Christian that says biblical inerrancy is essential is wrong. They, they're basing that on subconsciously. Well, I, I, did not, I did not come prepared to argue biblical inerrancy. I, Fair I enough, think yeah. that everyone else I'm prepared. I, 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 I do believe that inerrancy is the, the way the Bible is intended to be read, and I, I can I, argue that, but I'm not. Uh, I, don't, I don't have a. And I, I don't. Um, I don't mean to PowerPoint to, to, to give you enough. today, but fair I'll enough. I'll give you a shorthand version, though. I mean, yeah, the shorthand sure. is actually much simpler uh, than than what you're saying. I think the shorthand uh, would be uh, the Bible is God breathed, and what is God breathed is understandable and true. And every bit of it is God breathed, and therefore every bit of it has to be accurate. And if one bit of it is not God breathed, then it's not the Bible. Um, and, and it's it's as simple as that. And so if you're if you're even on a minor detail, if you're saying, well, the, the writers were wrong about that, but that's an unimportant detail. What you're saying is, well, the writers aren't God, and this thing that's in the Bible really isn't the Bible. And you, you're bringing the entire Bible into question now, because, you know, it's between these two covers that says the Holy Bible. Um, and so now I've got to try to figure out, well, what is or isn't the Bible? Gotcha. Uh, so there, there can't be any minor details that are wrong about something that God said. Gotcha. Because so, I, I didn't worship a God that could be wrong about anything. Gotcha. Perfect. So so just for the audience, and I'm, I'm not going to get into this because I don't want to be unfair. Um, David's David's position is the same as Norman Geisler. That, that's the argument, the headcanon that... Christians like David, or former Christians like David and, and Norman Geisler have in mind um, exactly what you just said, only they spell it out in a little bit more premise, like deductive detail. Um, I don't which which that. I which I can do if that's if that's the topic that I'm gonna exactly take yeah. just try to give a nutshell. Yep, exactly. So so perfect. So I don't buy that. I've seen the arguments. It it 
they have certain false premises. I, I myself, that was I had that same argument myself when I believed in biblical inerrancy. But I, I found that that headcanon can be falsified um, without going into the yes, details. And so therefore... The fact that, but the fact that it can be falsified doesn't mean that... Well, what it can... It can let me, let me take that back. I think I misunderstand what you're saying. You're saying the idea of itself can be falsified, not yeah. that it can illuminate falsifiable things. Correct, yeah. Okay, yeah. So, so, so yeah, so there's either got to be another way, such as my way, for determining the essential doctrines, um, or perhaps there's just no way, whatever, but... Um, well, which is what I said. But, but you, <laughs> haven't false, <laughs> you haven't falsified my idea so far as I've seen, my, my way for determining based on, we know the Bible's sufficiently intact, attached, that's my presupposition for this episode. Right, and, and I didn't co- I didn't come today to uh, argue sufficient attachment either. Correct. <laughs> since we, same, since same we have both argued that too, but I, I would say that you would have to accept a number of presuppositions that you're proposing uh, to to make your case, and in that case, you would be moving from not making a positive claim to making a positive claim. Okay, so so not making a positive claim. What? Why? Why is it wrong to? Okay, well, you covered well, that. You, yeah, you came you came into the, uh, the the podcast not making a positive claim. Exactly. So yeah. So that's why I, I didn't I didn't come to argue any positive claim that you were making. Yep, that and that's a fair enough point. Um, okay, so so I'll just my my method for deterrent. Let it, we know that the Bible is the word of God, and given that, the Bible proclaims that certain propositions or beliefs or doctrines and and or practices are are essential to achieving your salvation versus being damned. That that's an undeniable fact uh, that there's there that those are there. So. Real Christianity can minimally be defined as at least that. Uh, so that that's a start. That gives us a real Christianity that we can sink our teeth into, that we can work with and, and use to settle. Well, I think it, I think it runs a file of the uh, of another principle that I included, though, and it's a more practical principle that even if I granted you uh, the point you're trying to make, mm-hmm. uh, it, it still doesn't win the day. Uh, because orthodoxy has to be, um, uh, there must be agreement um, among the adherents, and I would I would still say that there's so much disagreement among uh, Christians on what constitutes orthodoxy and what constitutes uh, the the essentials of the Christian faith. That in practical terms, your argument just doesn't pan out. So once again, I, your argument amounts to the Bible should be sufficient um, mm-hmm. to show us what is necessary. Yeah. And I am arguing practically, but it's not. Well, pra- you can't say practically it's it's not. You just say you can just say practically. Well, in in real in reality in in the reality super real world that we all live in it's not no no it's you, not sufficient no you can't say that because practically it, it is sufficient but what you but can I say can is practically s- it I, doesn't do the trick it ju- okay. it's just a fact okay well then I'll, I will grant i will allow that um okay 
correction then. Practically, it doesn't. But the difference between doesn't and can't in, in this case for me um, is, is without distinction. Uh, I mean, you can prove that it can by proving that it does. And, and you can't. So the, the fact of the matter is division abounds among people who think like you. So that, that it is insufficient to say, well, the Bible should resolve uh, all the differences and show you clearly what is and isn't orthodox. Are you open, it though? doesn't. Are you open, though, that um, the reason it, it doesn't um, could be the fault of the people um, in any way? Could, couldn't, certainly, you, you skeptics always come after Christian. Oh, you're letting your bias get to you. You're just... Uh, reacting emotionally or you're in def you've you've said to me I'm in defensive mode and I'm not I've got my you called me an ostrich with my head in the sand isn't is that my fault or is that okay, are you gonna blame it the was, it was really quite funnier when I said it I just want to why well, I'm not a comedian you, you just kind of flattened it out <laughs> <laughs> okay fair enough I mean, but the way, the way you say it it sounds like an insult let's let's well yeah if I've <laughs> If, if let's pretend that's the case I, I was an ostrich with my head in the sand for that whatever we were disputing there um is that is that does that mean that there is no real christianity or would you just say dale get your dang head out of the sand and pay attention to the truth and try to figure it out uh if if it was true and i was just being in defensive mode and putting my head in the sand that's my fault that's that's why i disagree isn't that possible well, I suppose that's possible, but once again, we have to revert to the practical. So there's there's this ideal that you keep pointing to, okay. but the ideal does not match the lived reality. And at some point in terms of religion, especially a religion that is supposed to be supernaturally led by a supernatural being, the ideal should match reality because the, the supernatural magical being should be able to overcome all of our human foibles to make this thing happen. So I don't, I don't think it is sufficient to just blame humans for humaning. I mean, we're just being, we're just being humans and the, and the Christians that I know, most of them anyway, are doing the best they can. Uh, some of them I think are insincere. Uh, and you know, I have bad motives and so forth. But I, have, you know, I don't want to go there uh, for everybody or say that as a generality. Mm -hmm. I think that most people are doing the best they can, and the fact is, using their best lights in the tools that they think God has given them, they keep coming up with different ideas of what is and isn't essential. So no, I don't think it's fair to blame individuals in this case. Um, I, I think that the Holy Spirit has to spirit better than humans human. Yeah, I, I, I disagree with that uh, fundamentally. The Holy Spirit is constrained by... Uh, obviously, then, he's, it, then he's useless. Well, Screw that guy. No, because God, it's good for God, on a non-Calvinist understanding at least, uh, if, if Calvinism is true, then what you're saying makes sense. I, I, it's just unexplainable, but... On a non-Calvinist understanding, with libertarian free will, 
where we can grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. Uh, yeah, he, he do, God doesn't overwhelm us or overpower our free will. He, he lets us choose kind of thing and, and establish patterns of behavior. Uh, it, it's entirely my fault uh, if I act badly or I ignore my conscience and, and choose Whatever to Whatever happened sin. to greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world? You have to be... Well, it, it seems like he's not greater than anything. No, he... Well, he is if you let him. But that's the thing. It's some. It's sometimes you ignore the witness well, of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so then it's useless. You know, it's like you got the shield of faith. God's giving you this great shield, except it's full of holes. And you get... You get crap beat out of you by the enemy all day long. It's not much of a shield. Uh, you put but, on the whole armor of God and you get the shit kicked out of you every day. No, I, don't, I don't see what good that is. Um, so it's, it's more like in, your in practical terms, that's meaningless. If it can't stand up to humans just being human, with their human foibles doing the best they can, it's no good. It, yeah, but it, it has the power to do that if it want, if he wanted to. It's a he, um, but he doesn't because he respects our free will as free creatures. So it's more like the shield could, we could have a fully functioning shield. Everything bounces off of it, but because of our own sin, right? This is the process of sanctification. You don't become instantly. Uh, but, but in practical terms, zero people, zero people have that. So that's correct. Once again, that's yeah, the I kind think of that's, I think zero that's, people have what you're describing could happen. Yes, that's correct. And, and zero people will ever have that. No, no human being, uh, at least in this life, prior to death or that sort of thing or judgment or whatever, will have a, a completely solid 100% shield. We, we will continue to punch holes in it and allow Satan to get through. Which makes the promise of a shield useless. It, it's so it's useless. That's, that, look, I'm, from a practical term... I don't even care about the, the theoretical mm -hmm. here in this case. What you're arguing is a kind of a theoretical orthodoxy. And uh, that the Bible is this theoretical solution to Christian division. Yeah. But in, in reality, it is not a solution to Christian division. In fact, the more Christians try to study it, the more divided the church becomes. Because, you know... They'll have an insight, and they'll be like, "Oh no, I see. the The church is wrong about this. I'm. This is the truth. I think I need to start another church." There's, there is no, you know, ten people reading the Bible and coming up with the same conclusions because the Spirit led their heart in the same way, and this is how we know that you know the church is true. It's nothing like that. It's 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 a mess. And so you know, when you say the Bible is the way we know what is uh, essential and orthodox. I, I just use that same argument and say, look, we got the Bible and we have disagreement on this. And so I don't know what you're talking about. I know what I see and experience every day. I know, I know who I debate with on forums every day. It, there are people who essentially think the same way as you do, but they would actually disagree with you about what you're saying is essential. I don't think that's the case. I, I, don't, I can't think of a single... Now, I have no way to adjudicate between the two of you, but you're both... No, but I, I, I think you over-exaggerate, even addressing you on a pack, practical level. I, I don't find this to be the case at all. I think that there's 
a lot more agreement, especially on the minimal essential doctrines that I provide. I, I think that everyone agrees that the resurrection is an essential doctrine. Everyone um, agrees that the, the 20, 27 books of the New Testament are God's inspired word for, for Christians. Um, yeah, there, there's not this widespread disagreement on the core doctrines that you pretend there is. Now, there there are, obviously, you can point to a to a group like I, I, I think that it's it, the deity of Jesus. Jesus had as a divine nature, is an essential doctrine uh, as taught by the Bible. But you'll just say, well, Jehovah's Witnesses, even though I don't count them as Christians, you would say, but they self-profess as Christians and they deny the deity. Ha ha! I destroyed that. But that that's that does nothing to destroy the truth that there are these core doctrines as disclosed in divine revelation. Um, and divine revelation provides us with a mechanism to know better. Whether we do, in fact, know better or not, that's a different story. But we have the, God has provided the means to adjudicate what is real Christianity or not. Okay. Well, once, once again, I, I'm going to... I'll give you the last word on that, oh, yeah. except to say that... Um, I, I disagree. I don't. I don't see. Uh, I don't see your theory being expressed uh, in the real world that I live in. Um, well, why, so why don't? Yeah. Well, why? Like you've seen on the boards, right? Like Marvin and Joyce, for example, both agree with me on on. Marvin and Joyce wouldn't be Christians in any church that I grew up attending. So once once again, uh, you know your your theory falls apart at the real uh, at the gates of the real world. Um, so now, granted, I think that a lot of people that I grew up in church with would be wrong, but but um, wrong, not stupid. They, they have good reasons for thinking that. Uh, because Marvin Jones would disagree with them on things that they considered essential. And it, it's the same way that many, many Protestants believe that Catholics are going to hell. And, and by the way, many Catholics feel the same way about uh, Protestants, but uh, Catholics tend to be a little bit more ecumenical, I think, than, than a lot of Protestants. It's, it's hard to know between those two feuding sides which one is more convinced that the other is going to hell. Um, but but to simply say there's no major disputes about what is uh, essential, it just ignores uh, the reality lived by millions of people. Uh, and so, once again, I'm, it's, I'm not taking it upon myself to solve the dispute, because I don't care. I'm, I'm an outsider to this mess. It's not my mess anymore. Uh, but if you're saying that, you know, the Bible is some magic bullet way of solving these kinds of disputes, you're going to have to show me in practical terms uh, where that is happening and not just suggest that it should happen. Well, so see, I don't the, care what the, should happen. The way I, okay, so the way I see it is there's really three fundamental positions that Christians fall into. Um, so there's the category of the minimalist, which is my position and is held by a, a the vast majority of evangelical and Protestant Christians. Um, this is a, a, a mainstream view. It, um, I hope, I hope, is, 
can I just ask this and, and be honest, even if it'll annoy me or whatever, but do you see my method for determining it as ridiculous? Or, or can you at least say this is this is an option on the table? Uh, I think it's a cop-out. Okay, okay. I think, it's, I think it's a way of trying to smooth over the obvious problem of we've got a major disagreement problem in the church, and so let's just talk about this theory thing over here. Let's talk about the philosophy of agreement and not deal with the actual problem of disagreement. Uh, and so you want to try to get me to agree in some general terms on the philosophy of how Christians should agree, and I don't give a damn about the philosophy of how you should agree, uh, because your philosophy doesn't work in the real world, and that's all I care about. And so as an outsider looking in, all I can say is the stuff that you say should be working doesn't seem to work, doesn't look like that to me. Yeah, yeah uh, and I, I agree with that. Look, we, we sh it's better, all else being equal. Um, and in the real world, all else isn't equal, so that's why it doesn't obtain. But all else being equal, it would be better to have absolute truth on everything, on every issue in, in the Bible. That confusion is a bad thing in and of itself. Um, you know, we, I would want to know everything that God divinely inspired uh, without confusion at all. Um, Again, that that isn't the case. Um, so there has to be a justification or reason for that, and that's where the philosophizing comes into play about undue confusion and Molinistic defeaters, all of that stuff. But um, so so yeah, I'm not I'm not avoiding that fact, but I'm I'm trying my best to make sense of the facts that we have and see what is essential and what isn't. And, and there are those sure. three. But, see, but three. even if I granted you the, the point that you're trying to make, I don't think it would help you. Because um, let, let's say we grant that the Bible is the final court of arbitration. Okay. The, for I, that to work, can, the Bible... Can, uh, I, can I interrupt uh, just to keep... Before you... If, if you're going to forget, go ahead. Go ahead then, yeah. Okay. Well. Okay. Um, so I, 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 I didn't. I wasn't trying to interrupt your point. I was. Just, I was just trying. I was trying to find a way to grant you as much of your point as possible. Was okay. So, so let uh, me let me say this then, and that because I think what you're about to say is going to work well. So, I said there are three. I think there are only three categories of Christians on this front, or positions that Christians take. There's not this wide plethora of to each his own. I, I think there are three things. There's the minimalists like me. Um, then there are the the entire Bible is inerrant. So everything in the Bible defines Christianity. Uh, and then there are um, Catholic Bible plus Christians. So Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, they have additional authorities of some kind that provide additional doctrines and that. Those are the three main categories. There, there isn't any Christians that go, uh, oh yeah, Jesus, deity, death, and resurrection, plus Moses, plus uh, plus um, Jonah in the, in the belly of the fish or the whale. Uh, but that's it. Outside of that, no, not, nothing else. I, I think these are the vast, vast, vast majority of Christians fit into one of these three categories for, for how they define Christianity proper. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I, I don't, 
I don't think much of the minimalist view. I know a lot of people take it today. Mm-hmm. A lot of your favorite new apologists take it today. But once again, I think the reason we get the minimalist view is to help uh, Christians get out of trouble. Um, because taking the more traditional view, I don't think the minimalist view is the traditional view. Taking a more traditional view um, uh, gets, uh, it turns out, was not a good position when the atheists started pushing back. Uh, in uh, showing where the flaws were, and so I think that we, I think that a lot of Christians have fallen back on a kind of a minimalist view, so that they can get out of these um, t- terrible Bible issues when they come up, uh, and, and they don't have to get stuck with some of that baggage. So again, that's that's something that we we will talk about in another show, I'm sure. But I, ultimately, if I grant you your argument, if I grant you your minimalist view. It doesn't. It still doesn't help, uh, because for the Bible to be useful, even in that uh, minimalist sense, it has to be clear and uh, perfectly understandable. It it is not. And I know that you know you're talking about undue confusion, all that. But there is enough confusion so that you know average person between one person in the pew and the one sitting next to them don't agree. There is. There's plenty of confusion about that. And so it's not clear. And it, there also have to be people set aside constitutionally, this is from the beginning, who were set aside to clarify things that were unclear. So that if there were disputes, kind of like uh, in Judaism. Uh, in Judaism, it was, you know, they had a set of laws. If the laws weren't clear, they had courts. Um, you know, they had... Uh, lower courts and higher courts, they had ways of settling those disputes. Christianity doesn't have any of that stuff. And so, uh, you know, you can argue that it's the roots of orthodoxy, but since there is no way to really sort out those disputes, um, you can't, no side can claim orthodoxy simply by appealing to an unclear piece of source material. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think I think we've covered um, covered everything, uh, all your main points. Um, yeah, I think it was a, a good. Compliment. Have we you... covered your main objections? Do you have? Um, you mean to your there, blog, is... like the failed skeptical objections part? Is that? Yeah, what... I mean, do you have it? You have it because I mean, you wrote some things in your uh, write up that I think that you probably didn't cover here. Was there any of that that you think is relevant? Um. Not in terms of the main point, like it, like you know, you're you. These were things that you were bringing up, like oh, well, Jesus doesn't teach any doctrines at all, um, and I, he, well, he does. I, I gave some examples of where he teaches doctrines. Um, yes, I, I, so I will concede that Jesus teaches some doctrines, but I think my main point still stands there that he wasn't. The, the, the doctrines he taught was not in service of trying to create an institutional religion. Right. And so in terms of saying, well, this is an orthodox view of the institutional religion, Jesus wasn't doing that. Gotcha. And and, uh, and he did. He did set up the apostles to do that. He said they, they would be providentially in charge of doing that. It wasn't his role. Um, that was the Holy Spirit's role to guide the apostles to set up you know, eldership and all of the institutional issues, but yeah, right. that's, notice that's that an that's... argument that we've probably waited too long to make uh, now, since we're probably going into hour four. 
Um, or above two hours. But, so was, yeah. We, well, we might we might swing back around to that, but I I did think about uh, you know what if you what if you went that direction? So let's just say I have a response to that, but it's probably not worth going into right now. Um, I will I will leave you with some some dignity so that you can say well you had a sliver of a chance. There's that argument that David didn't answer. We'll just leave that dangling. Maybe we'll get to it in the comments. All right, sounds <laughs> so, good. Um, and um, so let me let me close out okay. uh, the, just my closing statement here, um, because I want to I just want to revisit the the whole idea of orthodoxy and why people use it in the first place. What Christians are trying to do when they point out that they have the orthodox positions, what they're trying to say is, I got the right answer and you're wrong. I I am the one that is expressing uh, the intention of the founder, and you are not. And even if they think the other person is not going to go to hell for thinking about it, the, the whole idea of claiming orthodox is claiming that you're more right. And I would say that there are extreme limits to orthodoxy. So even if it were possible to discover something that was that fit into my definition, my very specific definition of what is orthodox in, in Christian religion, there are limits. Orthodoxy can only tell us what the founders intended. It can't tell us what is right or what is best. So I've already given a few examples of this uh, as we talk today. We can talk about the orthodox biblical view of slavery, but it's wrong and atrocious, so I don't care. We can talk about the orthodox view of uh, adultery, that uh, adulterers should be put to death, but that is wrong and backward, and I don't care. There, there are a lot of things like that. We can talk about, you know, if you want to say that Paul is an author of orthodoxy, which I think is a stretch, um, then we can talk about women going to church with their head covered. Oh, Paul was wrong and stupid, and I don't care. Uh, so orthodoxy can only tell us the original intent of the founders. It can't tell us more what's right and what's best. Another limitation of orthodoxy is that orthodoxy seldom has in it a method uh, that allows it to be updated or even discarded. The U.S. Constitution is uh, an example of good orthodoxy where it does have a built-in mechanism to be updated. And if necessary, uh, you know, a well-formed uh, militia to overthrow the government, if, if necessary. Um, so, you know, that's, that's an interesting idea. Christianity does not really have this mechanism where we can later say, yeah, I think that uh, the apostles were wrong about this. We need to change that. There's, there's no, there's no mechanism for, for saying God's representatives were wrong, uh, or their, their views are outdated. Uh, and so that is problematic for orthodoxy. And finally, bad orthodox views poison the whole institution. So if you are claiming orthodoxy, and the view that you are claiming that is orthodox is a bad view, then your religion is bad and it should be discarded and ignored. So if in fact it is true 
that the orthodox view of homosexuality is that homosexuality is an abomination and that homosexuals should be put to death and that they're going to hell, your religion is stupid and should be ignored. So I don't actually care if that is the orthodox view. Um, so even as Christians argue this, and I think that not one Christian has a single leg to stand on uh, in suggesting that they're more orthodox than someone else, even if they did, it's extremely limited uh, in what it uh, in what it gets you. And so I would I would suggest to the Christian who's arguing with the well-informed skeptic, don't argue orthodoxy. You're gonna lose. Okay. Okay. Uh, so yeah. And in, in closing, uh, I think there are two fundamental things to get get straight with this issue. And, and the first is that there. are are ontological versus epistemological issues on defining orthodoxy. My main concern was on the ontology uh, aspect. Is there a real Christianity? Is there this, I think David would call it a theoretical set of propositions or practices and or doctrines, whatever you want to call it, that define real Christianity? And I haven't seen any reason to deny that there is such a thing. Um, given that David, and I've seen every reason to think that there is such a thing. That holds regardless of any epistemological gray zones. Maybe there's confusion or there's some people that, um, you know, don't know what, what that ontological reality or real Christianity is. Um, on, this, on the second front, that's where I came in as a Christian and I tried to speak to that issue. Well, God has provided a mechanism or means uh, that I think is perfectly valid as to how a Christian hypothetically could come to know that uh, through God's word and help of the Holy Spirit and and you know prayerful meditation that sort of thing. Um, the second the second major aspect to leave you guys with uh, sort of relates to the Bible and canonicity, which we didn't discuss at all, but that's in the blogs for you guys. But um, we have to remember that something like getting the Bible, canonicity of the Bible, is an artifact of divine revelation. It's not an object of divine revelation. It doesn't, we don't require, we're not required to have a divine authority uh, to tell us which books belong in the Bible or that sort of thing. Um, now, the reason I bring this up here, the main point here is we have to recognize God's providential uh, arrangement of things towards his ends. And he, God knows ontologically what real Christianity is. Even if human beings, it takes time for us to, to come to know what that ontological reality is. And in hindsight, it's perfectly valid to go, well, this is what real Christianity is. It's defined by the Bible. These are the books of the Bible. The books of the Bible define what Christianity is. So you're, you're allowed to recognize God's providential work uh, in how we have come to define uh, what real Christianity is throughout history. Um, so yeah, thank you guys for, for listening. Uh, next week, it's going to be my turn for to pick a topic. And I've picked one that I think David will appreciate. It's a scriptural one. And it's I'm going to be calling it the problem of par uh, skeptical parallelmania. Um, so we're actually going to be looking at the doctrine of creation was that borrowed from Egyptian or Babylonian myths or not? And I'm saying they they weren't. Uh, so yeah. Okay.
what what you say? What, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, I I tripped out on some bad drugs. What'd you say this was called again? <laughs> the problem of parallelmania. Par- parallelmania. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, like okay. seeing parallels, parallels everywhere. Par- yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. No, that wasn't the bad drugs. You actually said that. All right. Um. <laughs> it is a term. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, well, that that should be interesting, I guess. Really? Right? I, I thought that would be something you would uh, appreciate because you like going back to creation and seeing if it's... Uh... I, I do. I, we'll see what I can dig up on the... Egyptian myth and so forth. I mean, I uh, it's it's an interesting question as to whether uh, the there's a, a scientific foundation in the creation myth, but um, I'm not entirely sure. I care where it came from. <laughs> it's still, it's still a myth, so it wouldn't wouldn't matter to me if Job made it up or if uh, Josiah made it up or you know some Egyptians made it up. I don't care. Um, we're, we're myth-making machines. Um, we make up lots of myths. Okay. Um, okay, that's interesting. I, I When I picked this out, it was something short that I don't have to um, put uh, a lot of effort into researching since I'm doing the Leibnizian thing. But at the same time, I thought, you know, you, you like to say, oh, well, there's the motifs of water. I, I heard you with Helen Painter going over that, water and darkness and... I think you hinted that it might have been borrowed from these cultures, so that's why I, I picked that. But, oh well, you know, I, look, I think a lot of things are borrowed from a lot of cultures. There's a lot of syncretism that's been going on for a long time. So, let's ultimately, I don't care where the origin of it was. I don't, I don't know that we can trace the origin of um, a lot of these stories. I mean, the the, the um, Genesis story. Uh, widely believed to come from at least two different lines of uh, storytelling. And it's a little bit hard sometimes to see where one line ends and the other begins. But ultimately, that's not that's not what matters to me. But I will make a good argument um, after I see what you have to say about it <laughs> next week. So we'll see. Sounds good. I mean, the important, the, the important thing for the audience to, to recognize is uh, whatever happens, you're wrong. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I think that we can work something out. That's that's what uh, beloved Tyler B seems to think. What is, what does he want? <laughs> Change our the name of our show to uh, David Pummel's <laughs> Dale Again Show. <laughs> I'm not going to mention this. So, now you make me want. Now you make me want to look it up. So uh, yeah, this has been another episode of D P D A. And uh, we'll see you next week. Bye-bye, everyone.